Appreciate that introduction. Good to have you in here this afternoon. Appreciate you being there. And uh, as we get to think about leadership, I'm thankful that you're here this afternoon. I can't help as I come to this area of the country, uh, but be a, a little bit sentimental here in Western Kentucky. Uh, I'm a Florida boy uh, by nature. I was born in Florida, but my dad was a Kentucky guy. And so we grew up uh, coming to Western Kentucky, my dad, was from a little city named, uh, known as Morton's Gap, and uh, right next to, uh, uh, not far from Madisonville, uh, near Hopkinsville. So we, uh, Western Kentucky holds a, a fond place in our heart. I grew up watching him have this little black uh, Kentucky, a uh, little black radio that he would listen to Kaywood Leftford on, uh, listening to the Kentucky Wildcats, you know. So um, coming back to this area of the country is certainly uh, a good thing for me. I think about the providence of God and the way that he works in different people's lives. My dad and my grandfather were both coal miners and my grandfather was a farmer. My dad grew up on the farm. My dad was in the coal mines for six years. But my grandma used to say to my dad, Jackie, you need to get insurance. What she meant was not State Farm or Prudential, she meant his spiritual walk. And so I think about her influence upon him. Eventually he obeyed the gospel, sold his 57 Chevy and had enough money to buy a Volkswagen Beetle and drive to Free Hardeman. And so uh, I think about the providence of God and uh, kind of making a full circle coming back here. I get a little sentimental. Uh, I lost him in 2016, but but uh, thankful for the for the time that I had with him and the impression that, that he's left upon my soul and the brotherhood and things of that nature in terms of his spiritual walk. Last year in 2022, a man by the name of Hubert Jolly wrote this about leadership. He said, the traditional model of the leader hero who saves the day, knows it all, is the smartest person in the room, and is too often driven by power, fame, glory, or money, is not appropriate in today's environment. People today expect a different kind of leader. Our mind this afternoon could race to a lot of different places in scripture when we think about leadership. Maybe your mind would race to Abraham and the promise that God gave him. Maybe your mind could race in terms of leadership to the, uh, the man known as Joseph who would preserve a nation. Maybe your mind would race to other places in scripture, whether it be Moses who parted the Red Sea, or whether it be Joshua who finally entered the promised land, or whether it be David who had that monumental victory over the Philistine. Maybe you remember the words of the passage, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with jab a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord, he said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Our mind could race to many places and throughout scripture and think about great examples of what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a leader of God. My topic this afternoon is words of life for leaders. Primarily, we're going to look in the Gospel in James, but I want you to think about this. Maybe you remember in the Gospel of John, when Jesus had fed the 5,000, and there is this statement made in the Gospel of John, in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is no help at all, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's true. The preachers and teachers and God's leader. We handle heavenly treasures on a regular basis. How many times have you sat down to open your Bible 
and just have been thrilled and exhilarated and you sit there with anticipation and you, you say, Lord, I, I've got to wait to Sunday to get this out. But right now, boy, it's, it's percolating, right? It's brewing. We handle treasures that God has given to us. When we think about words of life for leaders, I want to give you this afternoon six things to think about from the book of James that I believe will be helpful as we think about words of life. Maybe you remember that account in John chapter 6 after Jesus had fed the 5,000. The masses left him. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, will you too turn away? Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have what? The words of life, right? So we're going to think of this afternoon about words of life for leaders. We're going to look at six different aspects this afternoon as time permits. Number one, God's leader is defined by service. In James chapter 1 and verse 1, the text reads, James, a servant of God, and to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greeting. When you think about the different ways that James could have described himself, whether he was the brother of the Lord or whether his uh, participation in certain events throughout history, he defines himself as a servant. And if you were to look at other translations, the New American Standard, it's translated as a bond servant. If you were to look into a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, the word there is a word that could be translated as slave, which shows the depth of servitude that James had. Of all the ways that he could describe himself, he calls himself a servant. But notice this in the text. He calls himself a servant of God. Who is the leader? Who is the leader in the book of James? In the very first verse, he says that he is a servant of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I, can I emphasize this afternoon that, that God is the leader, right? Jesus is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. God's leader has to fully give himself over to Jesus as Lord. He's not just Lord of some things. He's not just Lord of things, but off limits in some areas of our life. And, and, and we're going to kind of quarantine or fence off the Lord in other areas of our life. He must be fully Lord of every facet of our being. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. We see the extent of servitude. Number one this afternoon, when we think about God's leader, words of life for leaders, uh, we see that service must characterize our leadership. When we think about leadership, one notable leadership expert says this. There's a difference in emphasizing contribution versus achievement. There's a difference in emphasizing contribution over achievement. In contribution, I'm focusing on what I give. How can I sacrifice? How can I make your job easier? How can I assist you in the work that you're doing? How can I benefit you? How can we work as a team? You know, uh, this is the Lord's work, and this work is greater than any single one of us. But how can I help you? How can I serve you? There's a difference in contribution over achievement. Achievement is self-centered. Achievement is sitting in the glory of the limelight and, and, and reminiscing about what's happened in the past. And that's what achievement is like. But when we think about this, in every day, every day in a sense, the trophies and treasures of life are history, right? And I'm not saying that they don't matter and they're not important, that we can't take some self-satisfaction in those things. But tomorrow is God. And today the Lord gives us. Let's not borrow troubles from tomorrow. But let's lead today in thinking that if God's granted me today, 
Let me serve him. Let me serve him faithfully. Let me serve him like James did our Lord. Maybe you've heard this proverb, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. It's been attributed to various different people. But let's live today with service to our Lord. This expert in, in leadership says this, Raul notes this, that the primary emphasis in service is promoting a cause, not adulation, being a giver, not a taker, infusing life with passion and purpose. Jesus certainly said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And if we think about the very last verse in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah said this, remember me, oh my God, for good. Let us be the kind of people that are servants of God. Number two, when we think about God's leader and leadership, God's leader is unflappable. What does that word unflappable mean? Unflappable means it, it refers to a person who is calm under crisis. I remember a time in ministry when I was working with a congregation and I was quite frustrated. And I remember that we had a certain occasion, it was a, a Sunday night and we would have once a month, if there were enough men, we would have men's, uh, a moment of men's leadership, right? On Sunday night after the evening worship. I remember after one particular Sunday night, there were some things that happened in that men's business meeting that was very frustrating to me. And I remember going to this older man who had been an elder in the Lord's church. And I remember that I said, you know, I just, I just want to come and talk to you. And I, in my mind, I resolved to, to just go and listen to him. There was an older man. He had been an elder in the Lord's church. And our conversation wasn't very long, but I remember him doing this. He sat me down and he said, Daniel, let me give you a little bit of perspective. We didn't have a very long conversation, but, but just those few minutes with this former elder in the Lord's church, he weathered a lot of storms in his life. He had spent a lot of time in dealing with different issues in the in the Lord's body, but just spending some time with this older man kind of helped me get my feet back on the ground again and to, to gather my senses, to broaden my perspective, to not just see a problem that was in front of me and the frustration that I was feeling. An older man was a tremendous help. Uh, God's leader is unflappable. James chapter one, verse two says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. What's the message here? We all know that the trials are coming, don't we? We all know that temptation is, if it's not right in front of us now, it's, it's right on the horizon, right? But an unflappable leader says, you know, the time to prepare for trial is not when I'm in the heat of it. The time to prepare for trial is now. If I want calm, if I want peace, if I want that peace that passes understanding, I know the trial is coming, I prepare myself now. Why is equipped such a wonderful opportunity for us? Because we can pause and think and reflect, okay, how can, how can we face trials? How can I be that unflappable leader? How can I be that person that instead of panic, and instead of uh, being incensed and outraged or frustrated or angry or different emotions that people may have in, in trials, count it all joy. That's what God said that we could have. We know that it's coming. God's leader knows that weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God's leader knows that if God is for him, who can be against him? <clears throat> Andrew Murray says this in his definition of humility. Note the calmness. He says this. 
Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. God's leader is unflappable. Number three, God's leader is a motivational listener. James says in James 1.19, let every man be quick to hear and slow to speak. Verse 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. When you think about God's leader, God's leader is a motivational listener. Motivational listening is something that could go along with this idea of motivational interviewing. There is in positive psychology an approach known as motivational interviewing. We sometimes talk about it in pharmacy practice and how to get people to uh, make better decisions in terms of their medication management and taking their medications and so that more health out better health outcomes will come from certain uh, behaviors. But motivational interviewing does this. It asks open-ended questions. It affirms when it's appropriate. It reflectively listens, which means you restate things back to people. So what you're saying is this. What you, uh, what you're feeling is this. And so it's summarized. What's the goal? It's a goal. The goal in motivational listening is to have discussions with people so that as they reason and think through problems and outcomes, that they they come around to the right conclusion. So when you think, now biblically, I'm not advocating for Carl Rogers or some uh, fancy form of humanism here, but what I'm saying is that God's leader is one who is purposeful and intentful, knowing that people's lives must change to be in conformity to the word of God. You look at the message of John the Baptist, it was a message of what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at the message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You look at the message of the disciples. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and this spiritual transformation that, that Paul talks about is involving some significant changes in mind that result in significant changes of action. Motivational interviewing. It involves this notion of being a person that listens, but also understands that, hey, uh, my, my goal is not just to affirm everybody where they're at, because Jesus came not to keep us where we were, but to take us from, a, from an unclean state to a clean state, from an unrighteous state to a righteous state, right? It's not just affirming people and saying, oh, you know, uh, being empathetic and uh, to every cause under the sun, but it's conforming people's lives to Christ. Number four, when you think about God's leader, God's leader fearlessly holds himself and others accountable while being liberal in love and mercy. Let me say that again. God's leader fearlessly holds himself accountable and others accountable while being liberal in love and mercy. You might have heard this weekend people discuss uh, the idea about 
what Martin Luther thought about the book of James. Martin Luther lived in that period of the Reformation and he was incensed because the, the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church was selling indulgences. They were trying to build St. Peter's Basilica and as they would collect money, uh, it was as if they were uh, trying to collect funds from people to, to pay off sins. And that outraged Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote in uh, the preface to his German New Testament in 1522 that James' epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to the others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and others. Uh, he took that out incidentally in subsequent editions in that preface. But, but this idea of, of accountability, unquestionably James dives into accountability and responsibility. Faith without works is what? Yeah. Right? There is this idea of responsibility and not just being a hearer of the word, but also a doer of the word, right? Uh, we can't just leave it in an academic realm where we're just coldly rational about the word of God, but we never put it into practice with our hands or our feet, right? We've got to be people that are responsible in taking the word of God and putting it to life. Unquestionably, James deals with accountability in James chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then verse 19 of James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, this is being intent, uh, being intent in helping bring back sinners from the error of their ways. It's not just going and saying, hey, you know, it's okay where you're at and just keep doing what you're doing and you have my support, you can call me anytime you need. No, it's, hey, listen, this life that you're involved with, it ultimately offends God. Like, you've gotta make some changes. Like, you've gotta make those changes soon. You can't just put it off. And, and I wanna help you come back. And I want you to know that when you come home, Lord is pictured as a father there standing with open arms. He's ready to kill the fattened calf. He's ready to put the robe on you, ring on your finger. He wants you to come home. You know what? I want to welcome you. I want to help you. What can I do? What can I pray for today so that you'll turn your life to the Lord? Those are questions that are important. Holding people, the leader himself holds himself to a high standard of accountability. He's not afraid to confess his own sins. He's not afraid to look at his life and in the light of the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ to make changes when it's necessary to listen to criticism and, and if it's constructive to make those changes he holds himself accountable but he's also not afraid he doesn't fear men he doesn't fear their positions he doesn't fear um, outcomes he let the chips fall where they may he may say right he's going to serve the Lord this is God's leader he holds people accountable but also He's also a person that is liberal in mercy and liberal in love. The 130 hour, we were in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, as you move down into 12 and 13, there's a statement made about mercy triumphing over judgment. And I think about that. Where in all the world, right? And, and you think from a human standpoint, we uphold justice. We want fairness, we want equity, we want like things to be treated alike. We don't want injustice to prevail. But you know what you and I need? 
We need mercy. You know, every accountable human being that will enter into heaven, that will enter heaven because Christ's mercy overcame judgment. You read in Romans chapter 3, Jesus is both the just and the justified. He takes all the wrath that we deserve upon himself bodily on that on that tree, on that cross. He dies for us. He takes our sins in his body and dies. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He is liberal in mercy. The one who deserved justice, right? The one who deserved not to die. The one who deserved fairness. The one who didn't sin. The one who did keep the law took upon himself what you and I deserve. If you or I died on a cross, we would not be forgiven of our sins. It took Christ. It took him in his beauty and in his sacrifice to die for us. Yes, obedience is essential to the gospel of Christ, but we also, as God's people, must understand that Jesus is liberal in his love and is liberal in his mercy. And while we want to hold people and let them see that, that God wants them to change, we need to let them know also that God cares about them and, and loves them in abundance. This law in scripture, and James would call it the perfect law of liberty. Think about this for just a moment. Often when you and I think about law, we think about law in terms of constraining or restraining human behavior. Restraints, right? Here's the speed limit. Sit, set at 70, you know, and so there is a line that, that is drawn there in terms of human behavior, constraining someone. But the, what James calls it is this. He calls it the perfect law of liberty. What does liberty bring with it? Liberty brings freedom. So if you go all the way down, tie this together, James chapter 1, James calls himself a servant, a slave, and in this life of joy and in this life of servitude is freedom, tremendous freedom, as he upholds this perfect law of liberty, looking into the perfect law of liberty and seeing what's going on there. <clears throat> the one who looks in the perfect law of liberty, James 1.25, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James 2, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, if you're to tie what James is saying about law with Romans chapter 8, this is fascinating, in Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3. Look at that with me for just a moment. Then we'll look at point 5 and 6. James, Romans chapter 8 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, watch this, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Perfect law of liberty in James, the law of the spirit of life in Romans chapter 8. What does it do? It provides freedom. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? Well, there's freedom in this life of servitude with Christ, but if you're outside of Christ, what's the result? 
Well, the result of being outside of Christ is you're under sin and death. Here's the consequence. So in Christ Jesus, notice this. The last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, is what? It's death. Tie that together with Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, that the cause of death, the root cause of death is what? Sin. Right? So you have Jesus who takes on death. You have Jesus who takes on the cause of death, which is sin. And Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he, watch it, condemns sin in the flesh. Condemn, what's it mean? Cut it off. So he takes on the last enemy, death. He takes on the cause of the last enemy, which is sin, and he condemns it, cuts it off. So in Christ Jesus, we have that, that freedom. So you tie what Paul is saying in Romans together and 1 Corinthians together with James and this perfect law of liberty. And there's a beautiful picture that's being painted there in terms of the liberty and the joy and the freedom that is in Christ Jesus. So God's leader does what? He holds himself accountable, holds others accountable, but he's also abundant in mercy and love. He wants all people to say, be saved just like God. Number five, words of life for leaders. Number five, God's leader is attentive to toxic tendencies. All right, okay, so what's a toxic, toxic tendency? Well, if we were to look back at James chapter one and verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various <coughs> kinds. What's a toxic tendency? Well, a toxic, toxic tendency might be like this. Whenever you meet a trial, it's met with fatalism, right? A person with a toxic tendency can, can in time become toxic and they have this mindset, we can't do this. We're not gonna make it through this trial. We're gonna flop, we're gonna flounder. There'll be no way we'll get this. It's hopeless, it's helpless, and that's the mindset with this toxic tendency. Instead of saying, you know what? We're gonna endure this trial. And we're going to be better after we get through this trial because having come through this trial we're going to have patience and perseverance we're going to look back at this trial we're going to notice some scars we're going to notice some wounds but you know what god help me through it but a toxic personality says oh we got to meet it with fatalism we're helpless we're hopeless we can't do it we're going to fail we're going to flop we're going to flounder woe is me why am i going through it <coughs> but god's leader says you know what spirit of optimism just light at the end of the tunnel there's joy in the morning right toxic tendencies uh, toxic tendencies in temptation uh, uh, in temptation uh, uh, a toxic personality would say this you know uh, i faced all these trials i faced all these temptations you know when the devil sees me he just runs right so the temptation uh, the, the toxic personality with temptation is overconfident right and um, uh, that can be a problem. Uh, they can have this heart of a hypocrite, a heart of a Pharisee, and, and uh, be driving people away. A toxic personality is partial, James chapter two. So God's leader is attentive that sometimes in the flock, there can be certain uh, tendencies, right? Um, of brethren that can be toxic and can be infectious to the body. That a toxic personality is someone, when they walk into the room, if there's air, if there's light, if there's grace, and it's like, it's just like letting the air out of the balloon, right? And, and uh, 
God's leader is aware of that, and they they try to help with uh, where they can in helping people deal with toxic personalities. Number six, God's leader is fearless to worldliness. Fearless, uh, fearless in rejecting worldliness. God's leader loves people and is fearless in rejecting worldliness. In James chapter four, verse four, James would say this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want to say just a few words in terms of worldliness just for a moment. And I want you to think with me and reflect with me just a word of caution. I want to ask you to think about this. Is it possible for worldly metrics and worldly measurements to enter into the body of Christ in terms of what we count and what we quantify? Think about this. In our, in our body today, in the churches of Christ, in the body of Christ, there is a lack of people in preaching positions. Lots of congregations are in need of preachers. And you wonder sometimes about the pressures that are put upon ministers. And I, I wonder about this that has it come has it come into certain circumstances where worldliness has entered into the church to where we measure we measure things based upon performance or based upon quantifying outcomes for example if Noah was your preacher and all you had was eight and all you had was eight for a hundred years would you tell Noah that Noah you know listen you've been here a long time there hasn't been much growth here, you know, and we were looking for maybe nine, ten, and we were looking to double the numbers around here. Noah, it's time for us to look for someone else. I'm not saying that it's wrong or inherently evil to count, right? We all want to grow. If you're 50, you probably want to be 100. If you're 100, you want to be 200. If you're 200, you want probably want to be 400. All of us want to be bigger, right? We want more numbers. But I, I want us to think about this that sometimes we measure things, right? When really we should let God do the counting. Yeah. How do you measure the faithfulness of a mother who's spending time with her Timothy, her Titus in her home? How are you gonna measure that? How are you gonna quantify that? What board are you gonna put that up on, right? God knows, right? He's judging the faithful. What I'm saying is that sometimes worldliness enters into how we think about growth in the Lord's church. But God's leader says, you know what? Whatever metrics and whatever measurements, I'm going to look at those in light of the gospel question. You can read through the book of Acts and you can see where certain numbers are mentioned, 3,000, 5,000. Where in the book of Acts is the goal set for congregations of the Lord's church? Double, triple, quadruple. Where's that at? I'm not saying that it's wrong to grow. But I know that sometimes churches make changes, but what will we say to Jesus in Matthew chapter five and six, when the masses turn from him and walk with him no more? Should we turn to him and say, you know, you were doing it all wrong, Jesus. You were doing it, should have done it different. They wouldn't have left if you would have had a different approach. 
we need to test the metrics that, that sometimes measure success and performance in light of the, of the gospel. And God's leader is willing to do that. We must be willing to do that as well. In first second, excuse me, second Timothy chapter one and verse fifteen, Paul says to Timothy, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Sometimes folks are gonna leave when God's leader is doing what's right. I'm not saying that's a good thing, I'm not saying that, that won't hurt. I won't say won't say that you won't lose sleep over that. But I just want us to look at things from what the Bible says and understand that. But sometimes worldliness can certainly enter into our, our thoughts. Fearlessness to worldliness. I want to share with you one other thing. If I can use a clicker. There it is. Okay. I want to share with you this as we think about God's leader being fearless towards worldliness. I came across this article that was published by Barna in 2011. And it's this article, it says, Six Reasons Young Christians Leave Church. Now, Barna is publishing from a wider, uh, a use of Christendom, a broader use uh, in, in its reasoning. But six reasons young Christians leave church. Here are the six reasons that they gave. Number one, churches seem overprotective. Number two, teens and 20-somethings experience of Christianity is shallow. Number three, churches come across as antagonistic to science. Number four, young Christians' church experiences related to sexuality are often simplistic, judgmental. Uh, number five, they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. Number six, the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. This is what Barna said were reasons why young Christians were leaving the church. Two responses as I look at this are important to think about. Number one, we ought not to be dismissive of this. We want to listen to people. Why did they leave? What was the reasoning on why they left? What was it that they were seeking that, uh, that perhaps their need wasn't met or something of that nature? If, uh, if you're in a congregation and it takes you uh, 20 minutes to sing Amazing Grace and that seems to be unsettling to a young person, listen to them, right? Um, listen to them and, and uh, you know, in the way that they worship and things of that nature. It's important that we don't dismiss these things just by the wave of the hand and say that <coughs> their perceptions are all wrong and everything, you know, they're a young person and we shouldn't really give it much attention or something like that. Um, you know, a, a young person, in the way that they approach things, they're not, they're not going to approach their preacher probably probably aren't going to approach their preacher and say hey preacher i want you to preach a sermon on pornography probably not going to do that right how are we going to address these things that that they wrestle with and that other people uh, you know not just young but old uh, as well we need to have conversa candid conversations with parents and with youth and to get their feedback in light of the word of god god's leader is fearless in dealing with worldliness but also, I want us to think about this. There seems to be running through these answers and through these reasons why they leave a certain element of subjectivity. In other words, think about this. A young person said they left the church because the church was overprotective. What does that mean? Uh, 
too protective in what area? What do you mean by that? Do, do you mean that we should conform? In other words, that, that the church didn't meet your needs and therefore you left? Could the church be doing what's right and sometimes young people don't want to conform their life to that form of teaching? You see, sometimes people do leave. Right? Sometimes people do make accusations. In other words, when it comes to, to simplistic or judgmental towards sexuality, does that mean the church is going to change its position on premarital sex or extramarital affairs? Where, where does the line, does that mean the church is going to change its position on, on same-sex unions or on gender dysphoria? Is, it, is the church's job to, to move to, to please the people? <coughs> We must be fearless. Leaders must be fearless in facing worldliness. So I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't listen to these things, but there is an element of subjectivity in, in these responses that, that is concerning where there may be a clamor from people who do leave that, hey, I didn't like the church. I didn't like what the church represented. I didn't want to conform my life to that way of teaching, and so I left. It could be. The church was doing exactly what Christ wanted her to do. People leave. We don't want them to go. We wish that they would say, we would try to draw, we would leave the 99 to go after the one, wouldn't we? Right? We would sweep the house full of coins and get the one, right? Right? Uh, we would uh, ask both prodigal sons to come home, wouldn't we? We think about God's leader, and as we look into words of life for leaders in the book of James, we see that God's leader has a servant's heart, that they are inflappable, that they are a motivational listener, that they're not afraid to hold themselves accountable and others accountable, full of love, liberal in love and mercy. They're attentive to toxic tendencies. They're fearless to worldliness, and that's what they want to live by because ultimately they want to serve the Lord in life. I want to ask you, if you will, in summary, to pause with me and pray for just a moment for leadership in the Lord's church. Holy God, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for this conference and for this time that we can be together and to think about how to live our lives in a way that glorifies you. Dear Father, as we bring our lives before you that we are imperfect, we do and say and things, think things that don't please you. We pray, God, that you will shine lights upon our souls, that you will expose anything that separates us from you, and that we will humbly come before you and make those changes. We pray, others, we pray, Father, that we will help others to see the light and glory of the cross. We will never stand in the way of the cross, Father, but we will use your word to help bring others to this glory and to this truth. We pray, Father, that you'll bless each and every one of us that are here, that are part of this conference. Bless the good congregation here. Bless your leadership. We pray, Father, that for many years to come, these treasures that we have in our heart from the book of James may bear a rich fruit, and that rich fruit may always be to your glory. Forgive us of our sins, Father, and walk with us. Christ, we pray.